and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Pamela, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Pamela. I appreciate that introduction. And greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name again is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. And uh, the next call uh, will be uh, on August 20th at this time, again, 2 o'clock p.m. uh, Eastern Time, Wednesday, August 20th. The topic for that call will be Effectiveness of Home Blood Pressure Monitoring, Web Communication, and Pharmacist Care on Hypertension Control the EBP randomized control trial, which was published in the June 25th, 2008 issue of JAMA, with the lead author being Dr. Beverly Green. So we're excited about that. Uh, so please join us. Uh, several organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage you to do that as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. Sharita Golden. Welcome, Sharita. Hi. She- She will be discussing her article, Examining a Bidirectional Association Between Depressive Symptoms and and Diabetes, and this occurred in the June 18, 2008 issue of JAMA. Dr. Golden, uh, and we're delighted that she could join us today, is the Associate Professor is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is the Chairperson of the Glucose Control Task Force and the Director of the Inpatient Diabetes Management Service in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at uh, Johns Hopkins, and we are delighted to have her today. Uh, um, As a moderator for this call, it is my job to help us focus the discussion on the application of Dr. Golden's research into clinical practice with the goal of driving performance improvement uh, based on this article. Uh, So once again, we are very uh, enthused to have you, the participants, on the call, and it's really important for the quality of the call that we get you to participate, which means we'd like for you to prepare uh, along the course of Dr. Golden's comments, your comments and questions about how you have applied this depression screening as an example into your clinical practice or questions that you might have for Dr. Golden. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Golden will spend about 10 minutes summarizing her findings. I'll then take just a few more minutes to draw out some implications for real-world practice and set the stage for us to take your comments and questions. I want to stress how important your participation is, again, in these calls. This is a great forum to get clarification on anything about the article itself or things around diabetes and depression and the interaction between those two things. 
there are approximately 50 phone calls called in with several individuals per call. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the iChai and JEMA websites as a streaming audio or podcast. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available there. So let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Golden, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Golden? I thank you all for uh, listening in this afternoon. And I um, just want to um, explain the, the background of the study, what prompted me to pursue it, and then how we were able to look at the association between diabetes and depression and the population um, that we had. Um, so I'm a practicing um, endocrinologist, and I care, primarily care for individuals with diabetes and mostly type 2 diabetes. And what I had noticed in the clinical setting is that a lot of patients who have diabetes also seem to have comorbid um, symptoms of depression. And um, in looking at the literature a number of years ago, it was clear that there was an association between diabetes and depression, but it wasn't clear whether that association existed because depression led to an increased risk of diabetes or the converse that having diabetes led to an increased risk of depression. And so there have been several studies showing that depression increased the risk for developing type 2 diabetes, but um, only recently a couple of studies to suggest that having um, diabetes led to an increased risk of depression. So we wanted to look at both of those questions in um, a study called the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. It's a very large um, cohort study, which has one site here at Johns Hopkins, but there's actually six other centers that participate in the study. And um, their primary purpose was to look at risk factors for um, subclinical um, and clinical atherosclerosis, and they enrolled people of four ethnicities. So the study includes African Americans, Caucasian Americans, Chinese Americans, and Hispanic Americans. And um, at baseline, the individuals were between 45 and 84 years of age. And what was nice about the what's called the MESA study, that's the short term for it, is that at the initial visit um, back in 2000 to 2002, um, individuals completed a questionnaire called the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression um, Study Questionnaire that measured symptoms of depression. And then when they had a follow-up visit um, about three to five years later, those same questions were repeated. And then at each visit, we also had data on glucose and diabetes status so we could also determine whether people had diabetes at each of those visits. So that's what allowed us to look at both questions. Um, so the first thing we were interested in is, do people with depression have an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes? And um, what we found is that among people who had elevated symptoms of depression, that um, they had about a 42% increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes over an average of about three years of follow-up. Um, and what was interesting about the individuals who had more symptoms of depression is that they also had more diabetes-producing uh, lifestyle habits. So in other words, people with depression ate more calories during the day, they exercised less, and they were also more likely to smoke. And as a consequence, they were also more overweight than the people who did not have symptoms of depression. So we tried to account for the presence of those lifestyle factors in our analysis, and that did explain some of the association, but not all of the association that we saw between depression and type 2 diabetes. So the second question we were interested in in our population is if you had 
diabetes at the first visit, were you at an increased risk of developing symptoms of depression at a subsequent follow-up visit? And what we found there is that the um, individuals who had treated type 2 diabetes had a 52% higher risk of developing symptoms of depression over three years compared to people that did not have um, diabetes. Um, now, what was interesting in our study is that we looked at people with prediabetes and also with untreated diabetes. So the people with untreated diabetes were those who were either newly diagnosed or they were not on any um, medications. And the people with prediabetes and treated diabetes um, did not have an increased risk of developing depression. And in fact, they seemed to have a slightly lower risk of developing depression. And um, when we tried to account for a number of factors, um, we couldn't really find any other factors that explain the lower risk in those with um, prediabetes and untreated diabetes. Um, but again, what was most striking to us is that among the people who had treated diabetes, so those were individuals who had had their diabetes for longer and were on medications, um, they had a higher risk of developing symptoms of depression over the follow-up. Um, now, one question that we thought might explain that is that if you have treated um, diabetes, you're more likely, in addition to be on medications, to also have um, other comorbidities. So it could be that they had a higher disease burden overall. Um, and when we looked to see if those people with treated diabetes had more comorbidities and more complications, they did have more um, protein in the urine, um, which was a sign that they had more diabetic nephropathy, and they also had more um, high blood pressure. So they did seem to have other comorbidities that may have contributed to the depression. But again, even after we controlled for all of those factors, we still saw a higher risk of depression in those with treated diabetes. So I think, um, you know, in summarizing and thinking about our results, there are really um, three important messages that we felt um, came from our study. Um, one is that people with symptoms of depression are more likely to engage in diabetes-producing health behaviors, um, including eating more, exercising less, and smoking more. And as a consequence, they were more obese, which we know is a very strong risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. So this suggests that in treating individuals who have um, symptoms of depression, we also need to think of ways to stimulate um, healthy lifestyle behaviors in them as well as a complement to diabetes prevention. Um, the other important point is that people who had um, treated diabetes had a higher risk of developing symptoms of depression. So this actually suggests that in a clinical setting, in addition to screening for our traditional um, complications of diabetes, so we typically screen for eye disease, kidney disease, and foot disease, that we should also consider um, screening these individuals for symptoms of depression because this may impair their ability to have the excellent clinical outcomes that we would hope. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Golden. Appreciate that. Um, it's really a complex area, and really, I, 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 for one, are really thankful that you began uh, to uh, elucidate the connection between these two things. It seems obvious for those who I think are in clinical practice about the the, the connection between the two conditions. But uh, until your article was published, I didn't feel didn't feel comfortable espousing it, and uh, and you've elucidated that very nicely for us. Uh, we now want to turn to what the research suggests about changing clinical practice, changes that clinicians and other healthcare professionals might consider incorporating uh, based on the article's conclusions, incorporating into our systems of care. And we want to begin uh, to talk about uh, how we use this for better care. 
And uh, your questions and comments are really critical to that. So once again, we encourage you to write down your comments or questions for Dr. Golden and your experiences in this regard as we begin to move towards the question and answer session. Uh, Pamela, the operator, will be back on just a second and, and uh, instruct us on uh, how you can get into the queue uh, for your comment or question. Uh, so, Dr. Golden, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, really important implications for uh, your article and what should happen in the clinical, clini clinical realm. Uh, in terms of uh, screening diabetics uh, in practice, what would you do uh, uh, practically? Uh, I think that if we were to recommend screening all diabetics, which you alluded to maybe the fact that we could do or maybe that we should do, much like we screen for their feet and microalbumin, uh, what tools might we use? And is it really practical to think about screening all diabetics? Or does your data suggest that there are some diabetics who are at higher risk and the effectiveness of screening might be, uh, might be higher if we really try to target a specific subgroup? Well, I think just because the population of individuals with type 2 diabetes is so large, I think it is reasonable to think about, you know, which populations to target. So, you know, our data was in people who had treated diabetes. So these are people who've been on treatment for a number of years. So when we looked, they had been on medications for at least eight to nine years. Um, and, um, and then the prior studies have shown that at least just looking in cross-section, that people who have diabetes and complications of diabetes are more likely to have symptoms of depression. So, for example, individuals with kidney disease or eye disease are more likely to have symptoms of depression. So one population to definitely screen would be those who have evidence of diabetes with complications, and certainly those with more disabling complications, so retinopathy that's led to blindness, for example, um, certainly patients with kidney disease that's led to dialysis, those would be the populations to, I think, to initiate screening. But at least in my practice, um, because we've gotten very good at um, tightening glucose control, we don't see as many of the end-stage complications of diabetes as much as we did previously. So that suggests there's a larger population who maybe don't have disabling complications, but maybe very early complications that also need to be screened. Um, and if we think about screening, so we use the, um, um, the CESD questionnaire that we use to measure symptoms of depression has 21 questions. Um, there is a simpler screening tool that's been recommended for primary care practice. It's the, um, the PHQ-9, which is the um, patient um, health questionnaire, which has some screening questions for um, symptoms of depression that might be a little more practical to do, you know, in the real-world setting. Um, and I know, for example, when, when my patients are in the waiting area, we have them fill out a sheet that basically is a screening for complications of diabetes, so any eye changes, foot ulcers, you know, chest pain, you know, things that target complications. So this could be something that could almost be attached to a questionnaire that you may already be asking patients about other diabetes-related complications. Um, but then I also think that we need to make sure we have um, the resources when we do identify you know, elevated symptoms or ones that are concerning, we need to make sure we have resources for appropriate referral. Sure, and that, and that certainly makes sense. And maybe uh, for those on the call who might be using the PHQ-9 or some other instrument uh, to screen for diabetics, it would be great to hear about their experience in that regard and how they've worked it into their system. Are you, um, uh, remind us about the connection between diabetes and other chronic conditions. Has that been well explored? So the one area, the other area that I know where it's been explored quite a bit is, is um, you see depression and other chronic conditions. Right. Or, right, is, um, is cardiovascular disease. So 
So we know that people who have a, um, a heart attack, who have symptoms of depression, have a higher short-term and long-term mortality compared to people who have a heart attack who don't develop depression. Right. So there's a very strong connection there. And then there's also data showing that people with elevated symptoms of depression are also at higher risk of developing a first cardiovascular event. So that's another um, chronic condition, chronic metabolic condition, where this connection has been shown also. Well, I have a lot more questions I could ask you, but I think we should turn to our uh, callers for their questions and comments. And once again, we encourage uh, you to uh, to write down your comments or questions and get in the queue. And I will now turn it over to Pamela to tell us how to to, uh, to do that. Thank you, sir. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone, and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the numbers. If at any time your question has already been answered, please press star 2 to remove yourself from the question lineup. And, sir, our first question comes from Ms. Ann Fetrick of Lincoln Health Department. Please proceed with your question or comment. And for each of the for each of the uh, questioners or the, the participants who have a question or comment, please just repeat your name for us and once again just tell us where you're from just so, may, so we're, we're sure about that. I'm Dr. Ann Fetrick from Lincoln, Nebraska, and my question is, I didn't have my pen at the ready uh, to ask what is the – a more sensitive, larger questionnaire that uh, the doctor would like uh, uses in her clinic. I, I got PHQ nine, but I didn't get the twenty-one questionnaire's name. What's the instrument she uses? Right. So the question was, um, what was the instrument that we used? So I actually was um, describing the instrument that we use in the um, in the research study. It's the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression Scale. Okay. So it's C as in cat. Um, E is in Edward, um, S-D, but again, it's 21 items as opposed to nine, so um, it can be used in a clinical setting, but it's been used primarily in validated and research settings. Surely. Th thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah, thank you for your question. Trader, are there thank other you. tools that, uh, that uh, could be used in a primary care setting that are even shorter than the, the PHQ-9? That's one of the shortest ones that I'm aware of. There are mm -hmm. some other questionnaires. So there's like um, the CESD could certainly be used, but there's also a Beck Depression Inventory. Right, right. Um, yeah. You know, which also is a relatively short, you know, questionnaire. Um, and so, and then there are also some other diabetes-specific questionnaires that um, that our research group has been pulling because we've, we've been interested in following up on these findings, you know, in another population. But, for example, there's some very specific questionnaires that try to get at um, distress from diabetes and diabetes illness burden um, that try to account for that component of things. So there's some diabetes-specific questionnaires in addition to the general questionnaires. Right. And so I think it sort of depends upon your population. But what I find very interesting is sometimes if you ask the patient a simple question like, what else is going on that you can often, you know, you can't, you don't get quantification, but qualitatively you can begin to unearth whether or not this may be an issue. So right. if you look at the American Diabetes Association's clinical practice guidelines, so their standard of, standards of medical practice, um, and you look in the psychosocial and behavioral section, they sort of suggest doing some type of depression screening when patients really have had about two or three visits with poor glycemic control despite, you know, self-management type of interventions. And so, um, you know, that's sort of the setting in which you think about starting to um, 
you know, to do a questionnaire. But that's the setting I also start asking what else is happening. And then if you sort of get a sense that this could be a contributor, then I think it's more important to quantify it, particularly if you're thinking about referring patients on for additional treatment. Yeah, it makes sense. The, I think the BET depression inventory is 21 questions. Right. And it gets at a number of different content areas. And I think that, you know, many of us, just as a me means of practicality, I think ask very simple questions. Mm -hmm. And even then probably don't do it as, as often as we should. But as you said, just trying to unearth things. Do you feel blue or how often do you feel blue? Do you feel right. hopeless or helpless? Those sort of critical questions that try to get at it. But it's it's certainly not as formal and, uh, and not as validated as one would like. Right, and I think certainly patients aren't always comfortable talking about that issue um, because they may also think they're there for their me the medical component of their care. So I think that's why screening, a simple screening tool is helpful because it gives people the comfort level of being able to answer a question as opposed to just have it brought up in a setting where they may not be as comfortable articulating it. Yep, great. Thank you. Yep. And our next question or comment comes from the office of Asia Sheik of University of Growth. Please proceed with your question. Hello, my name is Asha. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm a master's student at the University of Guelph in Toronto, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And I've got a question, Just it's a methodological question about your first analysis mm -hmm. um, and where you're looking at the development of diabetes in persons with depression. Um, you mentioned that the participants were excluded if they did not have follow-up data with respect to the di diabetes status. Right. And um, my question is, what percentage of the participants were excluded, and um, how was this a bias accounted for? So um, there were only about um, 300 um, or so individuals who were excluded, so there weren't um, that many of them. So we in, the, in that population, we had about um, 5,200 people in that first analysis. So we excluded about um, about 300 of them, um, and they did not look materially different than the individuals who were included in the study you know, in terms of their baseline uh, metabolic factors that we were able to look at. Um, so we looked at that, but we didn't account for their exclusion in any specific way in the analysis. Thank you. Asha, any, I... any other questions in that regard about methodology? No, that's it. Thank you so much. Okay, super. Thank you. And we do have a ne the next questioner is from the office of Nikki Wiseman of New Paul's Family. Please proceed, ma'am. Hi, this is Nikki Wiseman. I'm the Regional Director of Psychosocial Services for the Institute for Family Health. So I work in the Mid-Hudson Sites. Um, I just wanted to comment on the PHQ-9 and the use of it. Um, we make great use of it, actually. Um, our doctors use um, a shortened form of the PHQ-9, which is called PHQ-2, and it's really just the first two questions on the PHQ-9, which ask little interest or pleasure in doing things um, and feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. Those are the two questions, and it's a yes or no. If the answer yes on either of them, then typically we we would do the PHQ-9. Our social workers, whenever we're doing intakes, we're doing the full nine questions. But in any case, it's something really easy to do. The two-question one, obviously, is a real quick thing. Um, and ideally, you would do the PHQ-9, which is something um, that is valid, particularly when it's handed to the patient and they fill it out. I mean, obviously, you're assuming the person can read it and understand it. Um, but it's something that can be handed to the patient in the waiting room to complete. It's something that the nurse can hand to the patient. So it's not something that necessarily has to take a whole lot of time, you know, in the visit itself. So I just kind of wanted to point all that out. Right. No, I really appreciate your comment because, um, you know, often our patients are in the waiting area anyway, you know, waiting for their appointment or waiting for the visit. So I think that's really 
you have them as a captive audience then. And again, if you're doing other screenings, like in a diabetes clinic, I think that's a very excellent point that it could be added on at that, you know, at that juncture. And uh, Nikki, uh, are you still on the line? I am. Yeah. So um, it looks like if one just Googles PHQ2, uh, you will come up with the uh, the two question uh, survey, and I'm coming up with it on the uh, Commonwealth Funds uh, website, which is great. It's there for you now. Um, uh, and so your instructions are: if you use this as a screening tool, which would be a very easy thing to do, uh, and they score positively on this, then you would go ahead and do the, the full PHQ-9. Right. If they score yes on either of those, you kind of want to yeah. get a better sense of the symptoms and what's going on. But um, right. scoring yes on either one of those is kind of significant. So. Right. Now let's. Um, uh, while you're on the line, one of the things we've spent a lot of time talking about, not, not uh, necessarily on this call, but when we talk about uh, the chronic care model, which I'm assuming that most of the listeners are familiar with, and we talk about primary care redesign and things along those lines, is the issue of care teams. And there certainly is, appropriately these days, a lot of uh, work on a conversation about the incorporation of behavioral health onto uh, the care teams, uh, certainly uh, primary care teams. And I would say uh, uh, some specialties as well. Uh, do you uh, do you do work in that regard? What's your experience with such models, and how might we incorporate those types of people into the team to assist with such screening and management? Well, that's very much um, our model. I mean, we um, we are a community health, a, you know, conglomeration of community health centers, and we have social workers that work at the sites in conjunction with the primary health care providers. So, for example, if um, you know a primary health provider has a patient that is diabetic or just straight up has depression or has both, um, really well, obviously, if they have depression, they would kind of get hooked into our system, and we work very closely with the providers, um, you know, around medication and any other issues related to the patient's really overall health. So it's great because you know we're kind of all under one roof. So. You know, the psychiatrist, the social worker, the nurses, the doctors, um, working very closely to manage the patient's overall health, you know, mental health and physical health. Dr. Golden, thoughts about uh, about that model? You probably do something like this yourself in your practice. Um, well, you know, I think that's a really excellent model because now, you know, my situation is a little different because I'm an endocrinologist, so we have a subspecialty clinic. Um, and so what we have in our setting is we have the nutritionist and we have our um, nurse practitioner, and they're both um, certified diabetes educators. And so a lot of times some of the initial psychosocial screening is done um, in that context with them. And then um, we actually have a licensed clinical social worker that we've tended to refer individuals to. Um, but we're actually, you know, I think it would be excellent to actually have someone that was physically there in the clinic at each visit. Um, so that all of those issues could be incorporated into the care plan, which is what it sounds like, um, Nikki, they're doing where you are, which I think um, sounds like um, that's really the ideal approach because I think one of the challenges is that if the patient has to go to another site or facility to get that care, then that's when things may potentially fall through the cracks. Absolutely. And so, yep. you know, I think being able to incorporate it into, you know, into care, because um, certainly with diabetes, a lot of emphasis over the years especially after the um, you know, diabetes complication and control trial showed that tight glucose control benefited, you know, lowered risk of complications in people with type 1 diabetes. A lot of those patients were monitoring their glucose, so a lot of the self-monitoring and 
um, behavioral self-management has sort of been incorporated, but if patients have symptoms of depression, they just are unable to do that as effectively. So it's helpful to have all of those components, you know, really together in the same location. And I think if patients have to go to another resource to get it, they don't always follow up as they should. Absolutely. The most common model that I think that I've seen, and maybe that's emerging, uh, Nikki, is uh, to have a primary care team and the most connected person on that team from a behavioral perspective is uh, is probably uh, probably a social worker. So it's, it's somebody who's going to do that relatively initial intake, but then not a lot of therapy, but will identify the issues, help to do some initial work. And I think uh, many people who are doing this are just calling that position the behavioralist. Uh, and uh, what are your thoughts about that? Certainly, it depends on the clinical situation. So we know the community health centers, which have with a heavy burden of psychosocial issues, in addition to a heavy burden of uh, of uh, clinical disease, uh, that uh, is a really applicable model. And what I've heard work best is about one behavioralist per four FTE clinicians in that in that community health center uh, uh, sort of situation. Uh, do you have experiences that sort of replicate that, or, or what? Uh, what are you learning? Well, I mean, our our social workers are doing the intakes. They're, you know, handling any of the kind of psychosocial issues, um, you know, referring case management, that kind of thing. They're also doing the mental health piece as well. So um, we kind of do it all here. It's <laughs> mm, <that's> amazing. <laughs> Well, if you were going to coach, uh, say, another community health center from somewhere else in the country came and said, look, we're looking for advice. We currently have uh, uh, physicians and uh, medical assistants and some uh, some uh, nurse practitioners. That That is our team. They don't really function as a team. But we understand from the perspective of managing chronic, managing chronic conditions and other psychosocial needs that we need to build that team. How would you recommend they take those first steps towards adding a behavioralist onto their team? Oh my goodness, that's such a hard question to answer. Oh, How sure. to, well, to let's get think it all started? That. Yeah, maybe others. Maybe others have thoughts about that because I think it really is a, an, a, a really applicable thing. It, mm-hmm. As uh, I think we both we've all alluded to, we we want to make sure that this screening gets done. We need to do it in a very efficient manner. Uh, physician resources are not necessarily required to do the screening, and when the screening is positive, other steps can be taken again with the physicians. Awareness, but not necessarily requiring the physician's input as we as we try to leverage our primary care physicians as much as we can these days. And so, if others have experiences in that regard, we'd love to hear from you. Well, Nikki, thank you very much for your input. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Rita, any other thoughts on that before we move on to the next question? No, I mean I think that's an excellent question. It'd be interesting to hear what others' experiences are, and then also the level of um, you know sort of what type of behavioral. Um, support, you know, has been most effective because, you know, we could think of a social worker, you know, all the way up to the level of a PhD psychologist. And so, you know, sort of what level is the most effective, you know, for the types of, um, you know, symptoms that you would see in the setting of diabetes or any chronic condition, you know, I think is really important because I think there's a spectrum of symptoms and there's also a spectrum of the, the mental health needs that patients will have depending upon where they fit on that spectrum. Excellent. Uh, Pamela? Yes. And our next question or comment comes from the office of Roger Kessler, University of Vermont. Please proceed. Hi, I'm Roger Kessler, and I'm a clinical psychologist in family medicine at University of Vermont. And interestingly, my 
research and clinical work is around the issue of integrating behavioral health into primary care. So I do have a couple of comments on some of the issues that have been raised. Um, the first thing I would uh, just like to throw out is a couple of websites. Um, the PHQ work, uh, including work on other forms of PHQ with anxiety, is probably best summarized on a website entitled Depression in Primary Care, which is a website from the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, that will actually tell you anything plus more that you want to know about the PHQ. What's most intriguing about the PHQ is it is empirically tied to levels of intervention. So it is a stepped measure in which evidence-based interventions are tied to score on the measure. The PHQ-2 is uh, not as robust a tool as a lengthier measure, of course, and the PHQ-9 has been validated um, many, many, many times. The conundrum with any briefer measure, i.e. a two-item measure, if you look at the work of COIN, um, what you'll discover is that the rate of false positives is quite high. So the shorter the screening measure you use, the more direct contact with an individual on the other side is probably needed to ascertain um, diagnosis. The other website that I would... Uh, uh, just like to throw out is something called uh, Integrated Primary Care, and that is a website out of Department of Family Medicine at University of Massachusetts, uh, Alexander Blunt. And one of the questions is, what happened? What's the first thing you do if a community health center or anyplace else wants to think about moving to a different model? And my response was, um, there needs to be consultation and training. And uh, the HRSA, the federal agency HRSA, which oversees the Community Health Center program, assists community health centers in uh, that way by identifying consultants who might be able to assist that process. The University of Massachusetts Department of Family Medicine has a six-month training program for uh, behavioral health professionals called Integrated, let me get this right, uh, it's uh, Behavioral Primary Care. And it's a six-month telemedicine program offered once a month. That would be something that I would strongly endorse um, if any organizations are interested in moving in the direction of uh, uh, collaborative care. And I think with those comments, I'll probably stop. Well, Roger, that's, uh, don't get off the line yet, though. No, no sir. <laughs> <laughs> Very useful uh, comments. We really appreciate you being on. And so uh, two things. The one is that the uh, Integrated Primary Care uh, website is literally www.integratedprimarycare.com. And uh, so that's where you can go to get that. And then the uh, Depression and Primary Care website uh, is wwwdepression primarycareorg and uh, that is sponsored by the MacArthur uh, Initiative. So thank you for those references. They both look fantastic, and I think uh, that training opportunity at UMass really is a wonderful opportunity to uh, take a, uh, a behavioralist and, uh, and get him trained up in a, in a virtual way for that work. And when you – I don't have time to peruse their website – what type of person do they recommend gets trained uh, uh, as being that integrative force in healthcare to bring primary care and mental health, behavioral health closer into the primary care team? I, th I think that it's probably a, a fair statement 
to make that those of us who are kind of dubbing around in this area for a period of time are more and more coming to the conclusion that it's less critical the degree uh, and more critical the training. Uh, so I know some uh, master's level social workers who are most excellently trained, who I'd love to have in a primary care site, where I know some PhD psychologist colleagues of mine who I wouldn't even think about wanting to put there. So I think that the training is more critical than the degree. I would say that um, a licensed mental health professional, um, different people with different degrees, I think social workers probably have more skills in care management. I think um, psychologists probably have uh, some more skills in treating more specifically the sequelae of medical problems. But I think that the key issue is uh, someone getting well-trained in the area. Yeah, I was going to comment. I think that's a, a very important issue because, um, you know, a lot of times, like I was mentioning, at least in diabetes care, a lot of the behavioral issues are brought to the attention of our CDE, you know, who's probably a, um, a nurse or a nurse practitioner that has a very strong medical background but not as strong of a behavioral background. So even if you identify the problems, you want to make sure that the person who's addressing those problems is really adequately trained to address them. And so this really highlights the fact that it needs to be someone with a mental health background who's had some more specific training. Although yesterday, I believe, in uh, Annals of Family Medicine, there was a paper that was evaluating, uh, let me see if I get my brain right, uh, evaluating the effectiveness of an intervention targeted at depression and hypertension, if I'm remembering that accurately. And um, the intervention was designed in a collaborative fashion. Uh, however, the person delivering the services um, was trained in the intervention, but was essentially a research master's level person um, and not a behavioral health trained specialist. So the question of who the person should be and can you train a broad range of people, um, I think is a very active question and certainly needs a great deal further investigation because you're not going to always have the resource available. Sure. Okay. You know, if you have a nurse available um, and you don't have a social worker available, mm-hmm. well, does that mean you don't? Or does that mean that you figure out ways of giving the nurse access to a great deal of training that would allow them to serve that function? Really great, great comments. And uh, that article in the Annals of Family Medicine is uh, Integration of Depression and Hypertension Treatment, a pilot randomized control trial study uh, published yesterday. And uh, they report positive results from integrating depression and hypertension treatment uh, in terms of uh, patient outcomes, so that's a useful that's a useful reference as well. You know, and one of the challenges we have is, uh, as we know, in the United States, it is still the case that the majority of physicians work in practices of eight or fewer uh, clinicians, and um, it's uh, it is sometimes easy for us to think about moving towards these care teams in larger organizations that might be the VA or Kaiser. Are a large, uh, another large uh, HMO or community health centers, which tend to have larger sites. Uh, but we are we we still struggle with those well-intended but smaller primary care practices uh, out there, both urban and rural. And um, 
so one question might be, do you know of any success in, in uh, using medical assistants who have obviously a lot less training than the other folks that you alluded to, but they are the staff that most primary care practices have. Are you, are you cognizant of that at all? I'm aware of um, subjective observations about the effectiveness of that model. I'm not impair, uh, aware of any empirical um, evaluation of that construct. Right. Um, just from my clinical perspective, um, I would think that um, there are a range of activities you can certainly train a medical assistant to engage in. Um, and there are probably some that you would not be able to train them to engage in. Uh, could a, uh, a medical assistant be trained in motivational interviewing? I'm quite sure that they could. Could that be an efficacious intervention from a physician assistant of some sort? Absolutely. Absolutely. As we look at the chronic care model, for example, on activating patients. Right. Good thought. Uh, Shreed, anything else in that regard? No, I think these are um, excellent points, and I appreciate the you know information on the websites, and then also just the, to get us to thinking about other resources that may, we may use in our clinical setting. Because often, you know, I'll go and speak at a conference where, and this happened recently, you know, a lot of the clinicians were practicing in very rural area where there was not a specialist, you know, for many things, you know, including mental health for 200 miles. So I think it is important to think about how we can utilize the system in which we find ourselves. Sure. I appreciate yes. those comments. Yeah, one of the other challenges, um, uh, Roger, I think, is the challenge of get, of billing. That uh, I believe, and it may be state dependent, how many people from within the same practice can bill on the same visit. So, if you had a say a social worker as a behavioralist, and the physician sees the patient, and then the behavioralist does, can both of them bill on the same day for a service? And I, that may be state dependent. I don't believe in Oregon you can do that, although others can correct me if they're on the call. And it may be that you can't do that in other states. I don't know the details of that, but it's something to keep an eye out for. Do you have any, any insights into that one? You just depressed me um, <laughs> because you identified, you identified the crux of the issue. Right. There is no existing financial model um, that allows collaborative care models to be sustainable. It is evolving, and exactly the issue that you're defining um, is the subject of, of a lot of inquiries and a lot of piloting and a lot of thinking, but it is a grave limitation. In Vermont, for example, where I am, it's about 50-50. We've been able to get half of the insurers to allow that to happen, half not. And if you think about a medical home model, if somebody comes into the office and uh, there is the identification of a, a behavioral comorbidity, you want that person seen exactly at the same time. And having to say, well, you know, come back tomorrow because we can't bill for you today because you've already seen your primary care visit is a huge limitation. And I think it's still a limitation, but it is a limitation that is getting a lot of attention at, uh, at the uh, CMS level, at the HRSA level, at multiple state levels. Uh, and I think that will change over time as there is a greater and greater appreciation of this collaborative care model. Fantastic. Well, that was very helpful. We appreciate it. Roger, thanks for joining us. Pamela? Yes, sir. And our next question or comment comes from the office of Katherine McAllister, Diabetes Center. Please proceed, ma'am. Hi, my name is Kathy, and I work at the Diabetes Center of Allegiance Health, and I'm a uh, clinical social worker. And um, one of the things that um, I address is normalizing reactions 
to diabetes as part of the person's journey in their grief and loss dynamic? Because a lot of the signs and symptoms of grief and loss are the same as, um, well, high blood sugars and and, um, diabetes that's not in good control, like feeling hopeless and helpless and irritable and moody. Um, When they first get a diagnosis, they're uh, sometimes numb, they're in denial. And just trying to normalize these reactions so that they understand this is part of the um, process of adjusting to that change in their life. And um, I wanted to ask about, um, oh, oh, and one other thing is that I find that when I can address the practical problems, like the people that don't have medication coverage or they don't have any insurance or they, they don't have a, any money for dental or eye or food, that when um, we can find solutions for that, um, the symptoms of depression and hopelessness and helplessness uh, can be removed because it's been such a heavy burden on them. And I wanted to find out, we do work with children, and very young, like uh, we've had, I think, uh, someone that was less than a year old all the way through their teens, and then we do adults. We do all um, areas of life here. And they, the children have a lot of um, depression because they feel different from other people and that they, it's a secret they don't want to tell anybody. I wanted to know if there's any um, thoughts about how to work with the children. Um, so those are um, actually some very um, some excellent points, and the, the, I'll make a comment on one of your comments, and then I can comment somewhat on children, although I, you know, take care of adults primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the whole issue about the adjustment to diagnosis is extremely critical, um, because what you know we couldn't really tease out in our study is what was the etiology of the symptoms of depression. So is it that you know they got a diagnosis of diabetes and were worried that they were going to get you know, blindness or lose a limb, because when people hear diabetes or mm-hmm. insulin, they immediately assume a set of clinical outcomes, mm-hmm. um, which don't necessarily end up happening, but that's sort of what, how they think of the disease. Um, and so I do think there's an adjustment period, and so is it that, you know, they're depressed because they're adjusting to a diagnosis, or is it that they're depressed because there are a whole host of other social issues that we're not addressing? So where my clinical practice is is right in um, inner city Baltimore, and um, and you're absolutely right that oftentimes the depression is because there are these other confounding social variables that, that have not been addressed. And so figuring out how to get them their insurance or their insulin or the free test strips, you know, can really alleviate some mm-hmm. of the depression that they're feeling. So I think we do have to not... Um, ignore the social environment in which the patient comes to us because that's extremely critical, you know, as a contributor. And like I said, in our study, because we had to deal with data that we had, we couldn't tease that out specifically, but that is definitely a contributor. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in terms of um, working with children, um, so I work primarily um, with adults. Um, Most of my patients have type 2 diabetes. Um, I know there was a study done in the past, um, I believe the first author's name was Kovacs. Um, it was published, um, it may have been in pediatrics, I can't remember the journal now, it was a number of years ago, um, and it was showing that in children with type 1 diabetes that especially around the time of their diagnosis, they had a higher risk of um, having depressive and anxiety symptoms. Um, but what was interesting is if you followed the children you know, further on through that adjustment period, some of those symptoms improved. Um, so that was somewhat encouraging, but I think the particularly for children, again, because especially if they get their type 1 diabetes diagnosed around the time of adolescence, 
for yeah. example, that's a huge adjustment because they already feel like, may have reasons they feel like they don't fit in, and then they have this chronic disorder that really causes them to change a lot of their behaviors. And so you can certainly see how that could be a contributor. And so I think that um, recognizing that and making the uh, mental health services available to children, especially around the time of diagnosis, and also to families is extremely important. Right. As well, I would think that need, the family needs to also be a component of that when it involves the children. Can I say something else? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I wanted to explain how they fit me in on the visits. Um, mm-hmm. I see all the new patients, and then I do a letter that goes to uh, it's their management plan. And um, then our CDEs, our, our dietitians and our nurses and our doctor, um, are very, very good at fettering out uh, where my services are needed. So I'll come to work, and I'll have notes and charts, you know, throughout my desk and on my computer and my mailbox, et cetera, of people that they want me to contact. So a lot of the work that I do is not necessarily in person, but I do a lot of it on the phone and through the mail. Um, And so that is not charged. And that is what's so great about where I work, is that I have wide latitude of who I can help and how I can help them. And um, so really, my my pay is almost, um, is not, most of it is not reimbursable. Mm-hmm. But they see the value of fitting this in, and so I just feel really blessed. And sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate your uh, your comments in that regard. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Uh, Pamela? Yes, sir. And our next question or comment comes from the office of Terry Robertson, Henry Ford Health. Please proceed. Hi, I'm a program manager in our Chronic Care Institute, and I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Um, and some of my questions or comments have, have already come up, but um, the remaining ones I had, we've done a lot of work here over the last three years trying to integrate depression screening and treatment in all of our chronic care programs, which include diabetes, heart failure, and CAD. And we've probably had the biggest success in diabetes. We've um, kind of infiltrated on, on several levels, and we've tried different models. And I guess one question I have, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the, the best treatment model. We've tried integrating nurse practitioners in our primary care clinics. We've tried cross-training nurse practitioners um, in different disease programs, diabetes and CAD and heart failure. And what we found is that those models were only capturing probably just a little under 40% of the patients we detect with depression we're able to capture and treatment. So still a ways to go. And what we've kind of realized is that by embedding people in these chronic disease programs, it's still very siloed care. And so we've moved in the last year really going into primary care, kind of parroting what Roger talked about. And we use a nurse practitioner model where the nurse practitioners are 50% consultants, teachers, trainers really teaching primary care physicians how to diagnose and treat depression. And we do use MAs to do all of the screening. We use the PHQ-2, and if it's positive, then our PHQ-9 is embedded in our electronic medical record. It's automated so that the MA can pull it up in the exam room, the patient can fill it out, 
and the nice thing is that it self-scores, self-interprets, so that when the primary care physician comes in, all that work's done. And they just pretty much confirm a diagnosis and then talk about treatment plan. Um, and that seems to be a better model. We're finding that the primary care physicians are treating about 78% of the cases that they're detecting. So we, we, we think that's kind of the winner for us in our system. But I guess that was one question in terms of the treatment model, what folks capture rate is in terms of treating the identified cases that we're screening for. If people are at a much higher rate or have thoughts on... Well, that's a great question. I mean, we would, we would certainly want to assume, assume that if we screen and, capture and, and, and identify that we would treat it 100% in some way, but that would be a bad assumption, wouldn't it? Sharita, uh, uh, thoughts about that? Yeah, I think one of the challenges, and it's interesting, is you, you mentioned that you tried, you know, sort of having individuals within certain chronic diseases trained to manage the depression, um, you know, because if we look, say, for example, in diabetes, that a lot of the um, clinical psychologists who do a lot of work looking at, um, you know, behavioral interventions for individuals with diabetes, depression treatments, tend to do it in the research setting and not in the clinical setting. So if we think of identifying people in the clinical setting, there aren't as many resources to refer individuals to when they actually do screen positive and need, you know, a more intensive intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and the majority of depression and type 2 diabetes is cared for in the primary care setting. So, for example, as an endocrinologist, I only get the type 2 diabetes when, you know, it's sort of um, much more complex than the primary care physician, um, you know, is comfortable handling. And so that's a very different population than what, you know, is seen in the primary care setting. But that's where the majority of both diabetes and depression um, is treated. So I think that that, that model that you talked about um, of really trying to incorporate it there, I can understand why the, the capture was better, probably because there were more resources, um, as opposed to trying to look within a specific disease, per se. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that, that would sort of be, um, you know, my comment with that is that if you think about having people specifically trained in a disease and the behavioral aspects, that, be, that sort of really limits, you know, it's a much smaller population than being able to train someone generally who can cross several disease areas which probably is a, um, a more appropriate approach. And I guess that's one of the questions I have. Has anybody had success with kind of building these super nurses, as we call them here, someone that's, that can handle across all diseases? When we talk about the advanced medical home and primary care, is anybody doing that successfully where they have a nurse practitioner that can treat, you know, whether it be CAT or heart failure, diabetes or asthma and depression where they're doing all of the diseases? Well, we, you know, um, I would say that our experience in that regard. Now, we, I think we, we use the term medical home with hesitancy because it, it's it's being used all over the place with very little agreement as to what folks are talking about. But when we talk about uh, primary care redesign or the primary care team, which I think is getting at essentially the same same types of issues, we we I think we certainly know uh, really good nurse practitioners or physicians assistants uh, who function as uh, really high, uh, you know, high quality primary care physicians, and they can manage those things. There might be others who who quite who don't have quite those clinical skills, and then how you put those individuals to use on a team uh, is a really an important topic. And I think that we are just getting into more robust experiments about that type of team behavior. And I can't point to you to any specific locations where they do it really, really well. I'm sure they're out there and you might want to 
folks might want to contact you if they if they uh, if they can afterwards. Uh, but uh, um, I would keep looking and I would keep experimenting in that regard and networking to find places which are really using teams, not just the nurse practitioner to do, to have his or her own panel, but the nurse practitioner to really help with chronic care management uh, uh, for a larger panel of uh, of patients, if you will. And I was that the other comment I'll add is you know you, you do start to wonder with certain diseases like you know diabetes is naturally the one I know the best but there's a lot of complexity involved in the diabetes treatment themselves and the behavioral changes and so it's probably also important to determine are there some chronic illnesses for which it is you know important to have someone that's specially trained in behavioral issues in that population versus you know behavioral issues in more general medical conditions because there may be some conditions where we you know, we may determine that it makes more sense to have someone specifically trained, and in some conditions where that kind of special training may not be as important. And I think we don't really know the answer to that question either. My other, if I can ask another question, um, is is anybody using the conversation maps for diabetes education, and have they integrated depression screening successfully within the context of using the maps? I'm curious if anyone's done that and how that's gone. So our um, so our nurse practitioner here does use the diabetes conversation maps. They use it in our diabetes um, education class. So we have um, about three versions of a diabetes education class. So we have a three-day program, a two-day program, and a one-day intensive program. And I believe in the two- and three-day program that they're using the diabetes conversation maps for behavior. Now, I don't think they're using it for the depression screening. Um, I think they're using it more for the lifestyle um, issues um, because as a part of that diabetes education program, we have a clinical psychologist or a, a licensed clinical social worker come in and talk about, you know, the stress issues related to diabetes. So um, because that's incorporated, I'm not sure they're using the conversation maps for that. Um, I'll certainly, I can check with her and follow up with you, but I know we're using the, just started using the conversation maps about a year ago when they were launched at the ADA for some of the, you know, other issues in diabetes. Thank you. Well, thank you for your comments and questions. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Uh, for this author in the room call. It really has been a wonderful discussion that I'm sure could go on for quite a bit longer. Uh, Dr. Golden, we really appreciate your uh, your participation. I think it's been a rich conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, I expect you have as well, even though yes, we've both been doing this work for a long time. That's right. You never stop learning in medicine. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will be on uh, Wednesday uh, August 20th, and the uh, article, uh, as I stated earlier, was Effectiveness of Home Blood Pressure Monitoring Web Communication and Pharmacist Care on Hypertension Control, a randomized control trial, and uh, that appeared in uh, the June, my computer's not responding, uh, a, a June uh, issue of JAMA, so we look forward to that. Uh, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve care, and I think today's call was a fantastic example of that. We thank each of you for participating in Author in the Room today, and we invite you to join us next month. Good day. Thank you. This concludes the conference call for today. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect.